Daniel Barnett here. Enrolment for the 2025 Virtual Employment Law Academy is now open. Go to www.virtualemploymentlawacademy.com for more information. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Employment Law Matters. This is Season 6, Episode 6, and it's the 2nd of May, 2023. I'm Barrister Daniel Barnett, a member of Outer Temple Chambers, presenter of the Legal Hour on LBC Radio and founder of the HR Inner Circle. As you know, this season is all about featuring some highlights from a series of 30 webinars that I hosted in 2021. I had 30 different employment law experts speaking on 30 different topics and answering questions from hundreds of HR professionals and solicitors. I've picked my favorite 12 episodes. I've picked my favorite half dozen questions and answers from each of those 12 episodes. And this week, we're looking at employee privacy and data monitoring. I'm playing extracts from the webinar I did with Jeremy Scott Joint of Outer Temple Chambers on that subject. The things you'll hear include when a subject access request is considered excessive, the biggest pitfall that employers fall into when capturing data, and whether an employer needs consent to use work monitoring software. Before that, over the last two weeks, you've heard me on these podcasts talk about the new platinum HR policy suite that I've created, along with some of the bonuses that go with it. You've got until this coming Friday, the 5th of May, to get hold of them, which you can do at Policies 2023, that's P-O-L-I-C-I-E-S, Policies2023.com. They consist of 26 brilliant HR policies, all of which are legally compliant, fully up to date and integrated, meaning each policy complements and supports the other related policies. Now, amongst half a dozen other bonuses, when you buy the policies, you also get our unique AAA 2023 update protection. Here's what I and the legal team will do for you for the whole of 2023. We'll keep an eye on employment legislation and case law developments. And if there are any changes affecting any of the policies, we'll assess the impact, amend the policy as the legislation or case law requires, and automatically issue you with the updated policy with an explanatory note. And you'll get those updates throughout 2023. But you need to act quickly because the policies come off sale this coming Friday, the 5th of May. They're only available for three weeks from launch and the launch window closes this coming Friday, the 5th of May. The website will close on that date. I don't know if or when we'll ever make it available for sale again. But if we do, we'll have removed all the bonuses and they are fantastic and it will just be the policies. www.policies2023.com. Do have a look. You've got till Friday the 5th of May. Now let's turn to Jeremy. Find out more about Daniel Barnett's HR policies at policies2023.com. Jeremy Scott Joint is a barrister 
at Outer Temple Chambers. Before coming to the bar, he ran compliance programs and oversaw internal investigations for two international banks. His work included advising on data protection and privacy issues, particularly with regard to cross-border investigations. Here he is answering questions on employee privacy and data monitoring. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. A couple of questions from me, if I may. First of all, since uh, lockdown last March, we've seen a massive, massive increase in the numbers of online meetings such as Zoom, Microsoft Teams, etc. If an employer's got recordings of those meetings, are they classified as personal data under the GDPR? And so the recordings have to be disclosed as part of a subject access request. Well, the definition of personal data is immensely broad. Um, really, anything that is to do with, it's not quite the words of the legislation, but it helps you understand it, to do with an identifiable individual or points towards an identifiable individual is going to be their personal data. But two important things to consider when you're talking about these recordings. And by the way, also, as Daniel did at the start of this, if you're recording people's meetings, even within an organisation, for goodness sake, make sure that's clear. Don't try and do it covertly or simply forget. People need to know that they're being recorded. Otherwise, you're going to get into some very sticky ground indeed. But generally speaking, the caveat to the simple answer, yes, if someone's mentioned in something or they feature in it, then yes, it's personal data, is going to be this. Firstly, when you get a subject access request, what's being asked for is information, not necessarily documents. So you don't necessarily have to weigh someone down with a whole bunch of recordings. The second point, of course, uh, and I I guess this is going to come up several times today because it's quite an important one, is when someone asks for their own personal data, that doesn't entitle them to everybody else's personal data as well. And there's always a balancing act to be undertaken about considering uh, this, by the way, for for the uh, statute nerds among us, is in uh, Schedule 1, Paragraph 16 of the Data Protection Act 2018. Um, there's a balancing act that has to be undertaken when you're trying to work out whether somebody else's privacy rights need to be respected over the privacy, the uh, data protection rights of the person making the request. It's a tricky balancing act, um, but it is one you always have to bear in mind. Then again, final point on this, because I don't want to go on for too long. Ultimately, if what someone's asking for is relatively innocuous, there's nothing confidential or, or, or otherwise generally problematic in it then you might have to consider whether actually it's much of an issue at all. If an employee is bringing some sort of claim such as unfair dismissal or discrimination and they say that there's data held on a colleague's phone about them, say, for example, the colleague has been making discriminatory comments in text messages or WhatsApp messages to other people in the organisation, is the personal data held on a colleague's mobile phone something that has to be disclosed as part of a subject access request? This is actually quite a tricky one and for a similar kind of reason. I noticed you said the colleagues own a mobile phone because the situation is likely to be different if it's a work mobile, for instance, one that your company owns and they've given you. And particularly if you've been sensible enough to draw up a bunch of rules about the use of that device for personal purposes. So if it's a company mobile device and you've got proper policies in place, then disclosing the stuff on there As long as it's about the person and taking into account what we've said already about the balancing act of disclosing other people's data, 
what the GDPR beautifully calls the rights and freedoms of others is probably going to be something you have to do where it's a colleague's own mobile phone. What you're talking about is their personal communication, say, between them and friends or them and colleagues. The company is not going to be the controller of that data. The individual is going to be the controller of that data. So in my view, it's going to be a real struggle for you, uh, for, a, for a data subject to make any kind of real case why they should get their data. Unless there's always an unless, isn't it? Um, unless it's, for instance, in work related communication, say a bring your own device policy that so many companies have these days where they don't give you a mobile phone. Instead, they say, uh, use your own and we'll uh, agree a policy to cover that. That's where it's going to get a little more sticky because then there may well be a live question as to who actually controls the data. There are a couple of interesting cases on this reason. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because otherwise we won't have time for other fun questions. But if you want to look up a case called PIPIA, that's P-I-P-I-A, and I will give Daniel the details of this so it can get put out later. That deals with the whole question of particularly for senior employees, what the circumstances are under which the company actually controls the data or not when it's the individual's own device. Is this the case ah, you're talking about? Papyrus brilliant. Again. There you go. That's the yep. one. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you. By the way, a last question for any Romanian speakers, if I've just gasped, done a ghastly pronunciation of that guy's name. Uh, last question for me, Jeremy Scott Joint. Let's imagine there's an ongoing disciplinary investigation going on and the employee thinks to himself, I want to see what the employer's got on me. Can they put in a subject access request to find out what's going on in an ongoing investigation? Oh, you had to ask me that one, didn't you? Um... <laughs> I've fallen foul of this in the past. Back when I was an investigator, I ran investigations for Standard Chartered Bank. One of the first investigations I did for them, uh, first big ones, was a large matter uh, where essentially a, a relatively senior employee was being accused of colluding with a client pretty much to defraud the bank. And we, uh, myself and someone else inside the organization were communicating over email quite a lot. And the other person said some pretty rude things about the subject of the investigation. Those communications were not privileged. Neither of us were lawyers at that point. And sure enough, later in the investigation, a subject access request came in. And yes, those communications were disclosed. The simple fact is there's nothing in the law that prevents non-privileged documents or those that, for instance, might fall into the exemption that covers the prevention and detection of crime or the prosecution and conviction of offenders, which is in uh, somewhere in Schedule 1. Don't ask me where, a DPA, but we can find it later. There's nothing inherently in the law that stops investigative information being shared. Now, again, God, we keep coming back to paragraph 16 of, of Schedule 1. If, for instance, part of that information involves a whistleblower, so another person to whom you owe a duty of confidence, then the chances are you can make a case that you're not going to have to share that stuff. A, because that person's not going to give consent in a million years, although you should probably ask them. And B, because it's a balancing act and there's a really wide margin of appreciation. But generally speaking, yes, I learned the hard way. If you're engaged in an investigation of an individual, unless things are genuinely privileged, for God's sake, keep it, keep it professional. Chris. 
Quick message, leave a review for this podcast before the 11th of June 2024 and win a prize. Go to com slash podcast reviews. com slash podcast reviews. You know, a follow up on that, Jeremy. Um, I know that some HR people think that as long as they use a code name for an employee, mm-hmm. so they refer to the, the, the employers as Big Bear rather than Jeremy Scott joint. That's disturbing. Then it's not going to be disclosable under a subject access request. Is, is there any truth in that? Uh, simple answer, yeah, no. The point is that personal data is, 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 is a legal construct. Whether you call someone, the, frankly, the fact that you're calling someone Big Bear is in itself personal data about that individual. So if you're going to use a code name, make it a, again, make it a sensible one because otherwise you'll pay the price later. I'll leave it to the audience's imaginations to work out what kind of embarrassing code names might be came up with, although Big Bear itself is is terrifying me slightly. So, no, look, if it's, person, if it's about that person, if it could be linked to them through sort of jigsaw identification, and obviously it can, the fact that you're calling them a uh, little turnip or something really doesn't make any difference. It's it's personal data. This This kind of kind of slightly squirrely attempt oh, it's it's not going to get you anywhere for goodness sake as i said it's probably a better idea just to be professional about it in the first place quick interruption from me i'll only be 15 seconds two requests please number one if you've got any friends or colleagues who might benefit from subscribing to this podcast please send them the link go.danielbarnett.com slash subscribe. Second of all, please do leave a review on whatever podcast software or system you use. It does make all the difference. Thanks. Now back to the episode. Let's go to the question from Victoria Duff. Can an employer monitor your work productivity while working at home through some kind of monitoring software? And if so, does the employee have to consent first? Ooh, this one's topical, isn't it? I guess partly it depends on what's being monitored. You know, if, um, as a general rule, of course, and, and, and this isn't so much a rule of law, it's just a rule of sense, that one should never ever do anything to an employee that involves looking over their shoulder without telling them first, unless, unless we're dealing with covert surveillance as part of an investigation where it's absolutely, absolutely necessary. So for goodness sake, make sure you're clear and transparent about these things. And also, just as a practical point, nobody likes to feel someone staring over their shoulder unless it's absolutely necessary. So if you don't need to, don't do it. Ultimately, there's a part of me that always comes back to the principle that if you if your employees are only going to do their jobs, if you're standing behind them with a big stick, then you've probably got the wrong employees or the wrong management. But that's not a legal point. As for consent. Well, again, you're going to have to think about what you're collecting. Is it personal data? Is it identifiable to an individual? It probably is. But then there are other bases on which you could do it. You could seek their consent. But. Let's remember in the employment context, consent is almost always vitiated. There's good case law. Daniel will remind me. I can't remember the details, but it's very strong that says that employees cannot give free and informed consent or under only under very, very rare cases. It would be far better to do it on a basis of legitimate interests, although legitimate interest is usually pretty weak source. Uh, And that means, obviously, that you're going to have to think about what you need to monitor and how. Do the minimum. 
don't look on it as an excuse to stare over someone's shoulder every hour of every day. 26 HR Policies. Buy now from Policies2023.com. Sue Apps has asked, to what extent do you need to redact employee data in tribunal proceedings where the personal data relates to employees who aren't party to the claim? For example, well, witness statements. Really getting a workout today, isn't it? I Is it, it paragraph worked. 16? Is that the right paragraph? Uh, paragraph 16 of Schedule 1. Uh, I had it open in front of me because I'm that much of a psycho. Unless I'm going mad, Jeremy, I think paragraph 16 is is this. OK, then it's paragraph 18. Unless it's Schedule 2 and I've just stuffed the whole thing up completely. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up while you're we'll talking. We'll look it up later. Anyway, the point is it's the bit that, uh, that deals with um, third party rights. So the important thing to remember is that aside from anything else, we're talking here about tribunal proceedings rather than subject access requests. If the tribunal needs to see the information, then ultimately the tribunal is going to want to see the information. Uh, So it's a different question here from from a subject access request. The real question is, is going to be what's the sensitivity of the information? If generally speaking, I would say that you wouldn't redact stuff that's uh, going to go uh, before a tribunal if you need to redact it. In other words, if you need to keep this information from the other side, as well as from the tribunal, then I would suggest for safety's sake, it's probably a good idea to apply to the tribunal to do so. If you're putting information in that's got huge black blobs all over it, bluntly, if I'm on the other side, I'm going to want to know what's under there. And I'm probably going to ask the tribunal what is under there. And so you're going to have an argument uh, about whether that redaction is actually proper or not. I would generally keep redaction to a minimum. Again, ask yourself the question, why are you blocking it out? Are you just blocking it out because it might be somebody else's personal data or are you blocking it out because there's something genuinely confidential or sensitive in there? You're going to have the argument if you produce redacted stuff. So be ready for it. Radar is a specialist commercial and litigation law firm dedicated to helping businesses navigate their risk, including employment issues. Radar's legal expertise and innovative digital tools focus on educating businesses before problems happen. Book your free 30-minute employment and HR consultation today or subscribe to their monthly newsletter at Radar, that's R-R-A-D-A-R, radar.com slash employment. Gillian Howard, morning Gillian, asks, are the use of covert recordings, CCTV covert recordings by employers, compatible with employees' rights and protections under the GDPR? Let's think about the word covert here, because CCTV isn't necessarily covert. In fact, most of the time it's not. You look up, OK, in the olden days, it was a huge flipping great camera. These days, it's usually a, you know, a teeny tiny little dome stuck in the ceiling somewhere or up in a corner. But nonetheless, if you're using closed circuit television to record your employees, then you should have told them about it already most of the time, except in those, I think, vanishingly rare circumstances where you've put in a camera specially to deal with a particular investigation. So as a general rule, if it's not covert, then in any case, you should be telling your employees it's happening, explaining the circumstances under which it's going to be used. 
and obeying the regulations, which is a very long regulation, monitoring recording of employees, something or other, data protection act, brackets, monitoring recording of employees, regulations. I can't remember which year it is, but I won't go into the details. The fact is there are regulatory steps. There are statutory steps you, you need to take, and most of them revolve around being absolutely crystal clear in advance about what you're actually doing. If it's covert recording, on the other hand, hmm, it is it can be compatible, but you're going to have to tread very carefully and you're going to have to think extremely carefully about why that rather than any other means of investigation is necessary. Uh, you need it to do the job and proportionate, i.e. there's no other less intrusive way of doing it. If you can't justify that level of pretty significant intrusion, then I think you do run some significant risk. I'm not saying don't do it. But always, 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 if you're going to be using any kind of covert recording or investigation, make sure you've clearly thought through and written down why that's the only option that's going to work for you. www.policies2023.com 26 HR policies just for you. Rebecca asks, what's the biggest pitfall employers fall into when capturing data? Wow, you do like an open ended question, Rebecca. That's fantastic. You know what? It all comes down to the same fundamental thing, in my view, not putting yourselves in the shoes of of your employees and forgetting in the process of doing so the biggest change that GDPR made. GDPR comes in for a lot of stick. And in some cases, rightly, it's it's rigid. It's civil law based for us. Common law nutters. It can feel awfully restrictive. But what it did critically was make absolutely clear that personal data is mine and yours. My data is mine. Daniel's data is his. Jenny's data is hers. Rebecca, your data is yours. That was a step change and a radical change. And what employers always get wrong is they forget that that's the starting point. You don't own this stuff. They own this stuff. If you start your planning for how to handle employees' personal data on the basis that their personal data is theirs on the whole you'll get it right if you forget that you'll get it wrong Breeden Consulting provides small and medium businesses with the breadth of HR support usually enjoyed by large corporates so if you want practical and commercially focused HR support or if you're an HR professional looking for an opportunity to capitalise on your experience by joining a great team Visit www.breedenconsulting, that's B-R-E-E-D-O-N, breedenconsulting.co.uk. Anonymous attendee, when is a subject access request considered excessive and how do you respond when you think that one is excessive? Excessive is a piece of string word, of course, isn't it? I mean, th- there's the obvious excessive. There's someone whose subject access request, whether, whether expressly or implicitly, is asking for 23 years worth of back data, which amounts to 90,000 pages. And Jeremy, um, sorry, I'm just going to put that in context, if I can, for anyone who's not sure. The relevance of it being excessive is that the data controller can either refuse to comply with the request or yes. supply less information or charge a fee for yes. supplying the information. Yeah, sorry. sorry, I should have uh, should have covered that. Volume is one issue. Whether it is abusive or vexatious is, of course, also an issue. Whether it's particularly complicated 
or requires on the face of it, not just because your systems are rubbish, but requires on the face of it a hugely expensive process of retrieving data. So, for instance, if someone's subject access request was for stuff that was, as I said, that was on paper from 1992 to 2003, then getting that stuff back, sorting it out, dealing with it is going to be an immense task, far harder than simply grabbing a bunch of files off uh, a hard drive that you stuck in a cupboard last year. Those are, broadly speaking, it excessive means what it says. You can always say this is excessive. You're going to have to defend that potentially to the Information Commission. So it becomes a balancing act. What does the person want? Is the information that they're asking for uh, related to what they want, what they're what they're asking for? Now, obviously, a subject tax request doesn't have to have a purpose. You know, your personal data, you have a right to your personal data. But nonetheless, when it comes to it, if some, what someone's asking for is going to put you to immense expense and trouble, First thing you do, by the way, also in such a case, you can say, well, actually, I need the three months rather than the one month because built into the legislation is an ability to extend. And that is. But please, when you do that, make sure you do that for a good reason, not just because you're trying to push the person around or make trouble or your systems are rubbish. That was Jeremy Scott Joint from Outer Temple Chambers. Jeremy, thank you so much. And you can join me next Tuesday, the 9th of May, when I'll be bringing you highlights from my webinar with Darren Newman, in which he answers questions on grievances. www.policies2023.com. It's your final chance, closes this Friday, to get hold of my HR policies and all the bonuses that go with it. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Barrister Daniel Barnett. Stay safe. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.